Okay, if you have Bibles with you, please open up to the Gospel of John, chapter 12. So after an eight-month break, we're working our way back through uh, John's Gospel. I, I worked my way through chapter 10, and then a few weeks ago we began looking at chapter 11. Today we'll begin uh, a look at, at chapter 12, really powerful, interesting portion of John's Gospel. Um, I'm going to begin reading in verse 1. You can follow along on the screen, or if you have your own uh, actual Bible with you, uh, you can follow along there. So John writes, beginning in verse 1, he says, Six days before the Passover, Jesus came to Bethany, where Lazarus lived, whom Jesus had raised from the dead. Here a dinner was given in Jesus' honor. Martha served, while Lazarus was among those reclining at the table, uh, with him. Then Mary took about a pint of pure nard, an expensive perfume, and she poured it on Jesus' feet and wiped his feet with her hair. And the house was filled with the fragrance of the perfume. But one of the, the disciples, Judas Iscariot, who was later to betray him, objected. Why wasn't this perfume sold and the money given to the poor? It was worth a year's wages. He did not say this because he cared about the poor, but because he was a thief. As keeper of the money bag, he used to help himself to what was put into it. Leave her alone, Jesus replied. It was intended that she should save this perfume for the day of my burial. You will always have the poor among you, but you will not always have me. Meanwhile, a large crowd of Jews found out that Jesus was there and came. Not only because of him, but also to see Lazarus, whom was raised from the dead. So the chief priests made plans to kill Lazarus as well. For on account of him, many of the Jews were going over to Jesus and believing in him. Let's pray. Lord, what a powerful portion of scripture. I pray even now, Lord, that you would prepare our hearts to receive your word. That our, word, our hearts would be good soil, ready to receive uh, your word is good seed. And, and Lord, I pray that your word would take hold in our hearts and that it would grow and that it would produce abundant fruit and that the fruit would be this, that we'd look and act and live and be much, much more like Jesus. Amen? Amen. Okay, so what do we have here? We have a banquet in Bethany. We have Lazarus eats and Martha serves, this time without complaining, and Mary anoints Jesus' feet. It tells us that it was six days before the Passover. This is probably sunset on a Friday evening, the start of the Jewish Sabbath, the one just prior to the upcoming Passover. And there was a dinner. There was a, a dinner given. Less than a week before his crucifixion, Jesus attended a dinner in his honor. Matthew 26 and Mark 14 make it clear that this this celebration, this party, this dinner in Jesus' honor took place at Simon the leper's house. And that his friends, Martha and Lazarus and Mary, were also uh, invited guests. They were in attendance. And so at this party, at this celebration, Mary takes a pint or a pound, depending on which translation you read, of pure nod, an expensive perfume, and she pours it on Jesus' feet. This this expensive perfume, it came in a specially designed flask, a flask that would prevent the, the liquid from 
uh, evaporating. It would preserve the liquid, this precious liquid. It was hermetically sealed, and it was designed in such a way that the, the container had to be broken in order for the, the ointment, the oil, to the perfume to come out. So let me talk a little bit about this remarkable uh, gift that Mary gave. It was, first of all, it was remarkably humble. In the midst of supper, Jesus gives this remarkable gift to, to Jesus. It's pure nod, what some translations call spike nod. Um, and, and so that's not the humble part, but you know, it was commonplace in Jesus' day for a, a guest to come and to, to wash their feet. Um, there are dirt roads, and people traveled on foot, and they wore sandals. Well, what does that combination lead to? It leads to pretty dirty feet, right? And so when a guest would come into your house, it was customary to have someone, usually the, the lowest-ranking servant in the house, and they would wash the feet of the guests, of the visitors. Mary, this is the humble part, she clearly wasn't the lowest servant in the house, she was Lazarus, the man who was raised from the dead. This, this is Lazarus's brother, right? She's, she's one of the honored guests. She's one of the close friends of Jesus. We, we saw that in, in chapter 11 at this, at this event. So she takes on this, this humble posture and washes Jesus' feet. You know, so it wasn't unusual for someone's feet to be washed, but it was unusual for for someone in Mary's position to do it. And it was also remarkable in the sense that it, they, she used an expensive perfume, not, not just a, a basin of water. She used very expensive perfume to do it. Mary's, Mary's gift was not only extravagantly and remarkably humble, it was remarkably extravagant. Um, so, yes, it was common to wash a guest's feet with water, but, and to dab the top of their head with oil. Usually the, the housing settings, the rooms, were small and they were tight. It's in, it's in the desert. It's hot, okay? People are sweaty. There's, um, there's an odor that usually comes with those kind of environments. So to dab, to wash someone's feet and dab their head with oil was a kindness to the person, and actually it was something gracious that everyone in the room would benefit from. Does that make sense? Right. Nadine and I had done outreach events at a, 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 an event called Burning Man. You're out in the desert for a whole week with no showers, no running water. Let me tell you, by the end of that week, if somebody wanted to wash my feet or dab my head with some kind of oil that smelled good, I would be happy, Nadine would be happy, everybody else in the camp would be happy. All right? Body odor took on like a whole new thing by the end of the week. But the account, <clears throat> Mark's account adds a little bit more detail to this. In Mark 14.3, it says that the oil was poured over Jesus' head as well. Not just a little dab of oil, but poured over his head. It says, while he was at Bethany reclining a table at the home of Simon the leper, a woman came with an alabaster jar a very expensive perfume. Can you see this is the same event? There's, there's so many parallels connecting the dots just within the first sentence or so. Made a pure nod. She broke the jar and poured the perfume on his head. Matthew's account in chapter 26 says the same thing. 
Here, Mary used this ointment to anoint Jesus. Not just a dab on his forehead, but the whole bottle. <laughs> Roger, reminds me of this friend of mine, Dave, in, in Washington. Anytime we would, in our church there, we would anoint somebody with oil, we all knew, don't give Dave the bottle. Whatever you do, don't give him the bottle. Because every single time, he didn't care where it was, in church, somebody's living room, outside, if you gave him the bottle, he's going to pour that whole bottle over somebody's head. So the word is out. Don't give Dave the bottle. We just want to do, you know, people have oil stains on their carpet. and Anyway, but Mary didn't care. She pours the whole container, the whole alabaster jar, broken it, and pours it over Jesus' head. Some translations say about a pound, others say a pint, but it's very expensive perfume. It's this, this oil of strychnine um, was, was quite costly. You see, in, in those days, it was pretty common for spices or for ointments or oils like this to be used either as currency or an investment. And, and it made sense. They, they usually oper- occupied just a small amount of space. They were easy to transport, and they were easy to barter on the open market. If I have this and you have that and we both want what the other has, we can, we can work out some kind of deal or arrangement. Now, according to Mark's gospel, Judas believed that this oil was worth a year's wages. Some translations say 300 denarii, some say 300 pence. But just to put it in perspective, I did a little bit of research, and the the data is about a year and a half old, but they said that the average annual income on PEI is $61,000. So if we just want to put it in perspective for us, this bottle of oil, this anointing oil, this perfume that, that Mary breaks and pours it over Jesus' head is worth somewhere in the neighborhood of $60,000. I think in, in anybody's uh, world, that's a lot of money, right? Uh, this is, that's pretty extravagant. Mary's gift was, was not only um, remarkably humble and remarkably extravagant, it was remarkably passionate. Not only did she give this gift of expensive oil, she wiped his feet with her hair. This means that she let down her hair in public. You have to understand that um, this is something that a Jewish woman just simply wouldn't do. It was just not done in Jesus' name. To loose, the loosening of a, of a woman's hair was was a mark of unusual self-abandonment. This simple act of letting her hair down proclaimed the adoration, the passion of her unbounded love for Jesus. Yes, this was a humble act, but it was also an extravagantly passionate act of love and devotion. I would take it even a step further. I would say... It was so passionate that there was, an, there was a sensual element about this. Not unholy, not impure, but it was passionate to that degree. See, in Jesus' day, women would wear their hair braided, in, tightly braided in a bun on, on top of their head. When a Hebrew woman in the first century let her hair down in public, she was making a statement. She was making a statement of her womanhood. She was making a sensual statement. 
And maybe in, in less pure settings, depending on what her, her trade was, being polite, it's even a sexual statement. Now, I don't think that's what was going on here, but understand the culture. You know, we could read over that she let her hair down and, and wiped up, you know, wiped his feet with her hair, but it was a profound, profoundly passionate act that Mary made. I mean, even to this day, right, you see it in the TV commercials, the commercials for shampoo or conditioner, right? There's always a woman who takes her hair and does this big whipping around thing, right? <laughs> to this day, it's a pretty sensual act for a woman to let her hair down. And I, it was in this day as well. Again, not impure. I don't think there was anything impure or unholy about what Mary did, but it was intimate, and it was an indication of something that was remarkably uh, passionate. Can you see that? That makes sense? I think sometimes we can read over these accounts of Scripture and miss the, the nuances, the profound impacting nuances. She obviously, Mary obviously didn't care one bit what people thought about her. She was so passionately in love with Jesus. She was so grateful that her brother was raised from the dead. She could care less what anybody else in the room did. She was going to express, express her love and her worship for him in that place. All she knew is that she was madly and passionately in love with Jesus and more than willing to show it. Now get this. Guys, this was a scandalous act. I touched on this a, a couple of weeks ago, right? Public interaction between men and any other woman other than their wives in a Hebrew culture was strictly taboo. There was no interaction between the men and other women, certainly not in proper settings, not in religious settings. Heck, there was little interaction between Hebrew men and their wives in public. Even they wouldn't interact. They wouldn't talk. They certainly wouldn't touch. So what Mary's doing, way out of the box. She's calling way outside the lines. I can remember years ago, I'm working in New York City as a school custodian, and, and the job there was, was less janitorial and more administrative. I had an office. I had to wear a suit and a tie. I had a staff that, that I ran. And one of my responsibilities was to rent out portions of the building. We had an auditorium, we had a gymnasium, and sometimes community groups would like to use the, the, the space for whatever their purpose was. And one of the buildings that I ran was in an Orthodox uh, Jewish neighborhood in Brooklyn. And so just one day, a man and his wife, both obviously Orthodox Jews, come into my office because they want to make arrangements uh, to rent the building. And I'm just being a gentleman and operating out of instinct, I reach out my hand and I shake the man's hand. And his wife's next to him and I stretch out my hand to shake her hand because that's what my mother taught, raised me to do, right? You're polite and respectful. Well, she kept her hands tightly to herself. Matter of fact, she even kind of stiffened a little bit when I put my hand out and she kind of looked at me and honestly, I was confused. And then I kind of looked at him and he's like, he's like, we don't do that. It's like, oh, oh, that's right, I'm sorry. I forgot. She, to this day, she wouldn't shake my hand in front of her husband because she just didn't do it. It just, it just wasn't done. So, with all that said, imagine this. If, you, if you're willing, just close your eyes for a second and imagine this setting. We're at a party. 
where Jesus is the guest of honor. The healed leper, Simon, is sitting on one side of Jesus, and the man raised from the dead, Lazarus, is sitting on the other side. The room's filled with people. There's probably lots of food. People are happy. It's a celebration. Right? Simon no longer has leprosy. He's throwing this party. If I didn't have leprosy, I'd throw a party too. Lazarus is there and he's no longer dead. This is a good, there's probably music of some kind playing in the background. If the party was at my house, there'd be music playing in the background. <coughs> Jesus is sitting on the floor. He's reclining at the table as was customary. And a woman approaches him. A single woman, an unmarried woman. A deeply grateful woman. A woman that he knows well. And she takes a bottle of perfume worth upwards of $60,000. And she breaks the seal open and she pours the entire contents of this very expensive bottle over Jesus' head. What happens in the room? Does the room gasp? Does the music stop? Is everyone watching in stunned amazement? I'll tell you what, if this happened in my living room today, the music probably would have stopped and people would have been stunned amazement. Were they judging Jesus? They might have been. What is, why is he letting this woman touch him? What is wrong with him? Are they judging the woman? That's really forward of her. Doesn't she know her place? She shouldn't be touching him like this. Doesn't she know how expensive that perfume is? Are they wondering about the disciples? He's got 12 guys with him. None of them could stop her. None of them could step in and correct this inappropriate behavior by a woman without Jesus. I don't know. But the woman isn't finished. I imagine her pouring the oil over his head slowly. I don't see this as a splash. I think that this is, this is a personal, this is a passion thing. I think he's just, she's just pouring it little by little, this very precious ointment over his head, and he doesn't react. He doesn't fight with her. He doesn't halt her or stop her. I think he just receives it. And it drips over his head slowly, down, down his hair, the sides of his beard, over the front of his clothes. The room is filled with the fragrance. Just overwhelming. The whole room is filled. And as it pulls at Jesus' feet, she's even more scandalous. She unties her hair and she bends down and soaks up the excess with her hair. And if that's not enough, if that's not enough, she uses this same perfume-soaked hair and she washes the dust and the dirt of Bethany's roadways from Jesus' feet. Wow. Profoundly powerful. Extremely personal. Deeply intimate. <laughs> and completely and totally beyond cultural norms. This just wasn't done. And get this. Get this part. Jesus never stops her. He never stops her. 
He let her do it. He never corrects her. Instead, he lets, him, he lets her anoint him. And then, when Judas complains, he commends her in front of the whole room, the whole house full of people. He commends her like he's commended no one other. I tell you, I'm stunned that to this day, there are still so many Christian denominations that wrestle with the role of women in the church. I find it astonishing that we still have a problem with this. Jesus obviously had no problem with women, no problem whatsoever. We find women laced throughout the gospel narrative. Guys, he was born to a woman. He was born to Mary. How did the incarnation begin? Jesus came to earth inside of a woman, in her womb. He could have come any way he wanted to. He could have come as a fully grown man. He, like he's going to come on a white horse and ride into the earth in the second coming. He could have come that way the first time. But it's not what he chose to do. I think it's honoring. I think it's loving. He chooses to come. The word of God made flesh. God on earth. Inside a woman. That's how it begins. That's a statement. That means something. God dwelled in a woman for nine months. That's how he chose to come. And then just throughout the gospel, he heals Peter's mother-in-law, raises Jairus' daughter from the dead, the raising of the widow of Nain's son from the dead, the rescuing of the woman caught in the act of adultery, meeting with the Samaritan woman. Oh my goodness, more scandal. Scandal beyond scandal. You've got to be kidding me. His time with Martha and Mary. Oh, Martha, Martha. You worry about too many things. Mary has chosen the better portion. There are women at the resurrection, at his death and at his resurrection. They're the one at the, at the beginning. The women were there at the end. Women were there. Jesus clearly had no problem with women. And you might say, well, okay, Tom, if that's the case, then how come there weren't any women among the 12 disciples? You know, was, was that a statement of gender identity? Well, I don't think so. I was thinking about this. This is my take. You can decide if you agree or not. God came to us. He entered into our world. He didn't demand that we go to him. He came to us. God chose the specific time in human history, to enter into relationship with humanity. And at the time he chose, he, he entered into a specific culture, a Hebrew culture some 2,000 years ago. He didn't demand that we come up to him and that we live according to, to his, his described standards and operate according to his ways. He came to us and met with us and how we operated. And how they operated in that culture 2,000 years ago was male-dominated. It absolutely was. I don't think that that was a statement of God's approval on the culture of the day. I think it's a statement of his extravagant love for us that he would go from glory and meet us where we were at. He entered into our world and brought radical change to it. 
I think his choosing to come at, at that time was not a statement of approval of the way women were treated then or how men and women interacted. He just came at a particular point in time and he entered into our world. That was part of our world then. My best guess, this is Tom Zawacki's opinion, is that if Jesus, if the first coming was now, today, I think there would have been women among the twelve. Why? Because our culture is so different. I think Jesus was accommodating the culture out of his great love for us. The Gospels and the first century church were transformative for women at the time. In Acts 21.8, Philip the Evangelist, it says that he has four unmarried daughters who are prophets. There are prophets and apostles, women prophets and apostles in the first century church. Trust me, that was, that was, that was amazing. I mean, that was completely outside the cultural norms. Philippians 4.2, Paul refers to two women, and he refers to them as co-workers in spreading the gospel. In chapter 16, verse 1, Paul refers to Phoebe as a minister. In verse 3, he refers to Priscilla as one of his fellow workers in Christ Jesus. In Romans 16.7, he refers to a male apostle, uh, Androconus and a female apostle, Junior, Junior, as outstanding among the apostles. Jesus had no problem with women functioning and operating fully in who he made them to be. Would it make sense to invest into 50% of the population, gifts, talents, and abilities, and then say, you're not allowed to use them? No, just incongruent. It doesn't make any sense. If God would, would invest gifts, talents, abilities, leadership abilities, preaching abilities, governing abilities, prophetic abilities, apostolic abilities into a woman, then who am I to say you can't use what God gave you? I think I'm putting myself in a dangerous spot. I'm grateful that throughout my going on 40-year journey as a Christian, I've had really powerfully strong, gifted and talented women all along the way. And they've been an amazing blessing. I believe that the church has a long way to go to get Jesus' perspective on, on women. And just how men and women are to relate in the new covenant, under the grace, under grace and not under law. So, like I said, I believe if Jesus came today, women would be among the twelve. Because he would have come to this culture and not a first century Hebrew culture. But that might, the, the fuller explanation of that might be for another day. But here, here's a side note. For you ladies who are here today, what if you were fully free to be the woman God created you to be? What if you didn't have to wear masks? What if you weren't limited or restricted? Almost every single woman I know feels like they have to conform. They have to put, squeeze themselves into some type of acceptable mold. What if, what if the molds were broken? What if the cage doors were exploded? And what if you were fully free to be who God made you to be? <laughs> not manipulated by the expectations of men. And it goes two ways. 
You're too sexy. You're not sexy enough. What if you could be as sexy as you want to be and it's good and right and pure and holy? Wouldn't that be a good thing? I don't have to be too much or not be enough. What if you weren't manipulated by the expectations of the church? What if? What if? You could... <laughs> I might be in... I might be in trouble. Right? What if you could choose... I'm all the way in now. Anyway, what if you could choose to wear the clothes you like to wear? And you're wearing them for you because this is what you like. It doesn't matter what anybody else thinks about what you wear. That would be freedom. I'm not doing this for somebody else to get a reaction or refusing to do this to prevent getting a reaction. I just put this on because I like this color today. I can tell you honestly as a man, I give so little thought into the clothes that I wear. This is how I pick the clothes. I open the drawer, it's on top. That's all the thought I put into it. Right? I bet you there's not a woman in this room that has that much liberty. Boy, there's lots, of, there's lots of thinking. Can I say what you said to me this morning? Nidhi says to me this morning, we're getting dressed. She's like, did I wear this shirt last week? I have no idea if you wore that shirt last week. I have no idea. Women, what if you were, what if you were as free as Mary? Wouldn't that be awesome? You're not manipulated. You're not controlled by the expectations of men or the church or Madison Avenue or other women. <laughs> no facades. How about no hiding? How about this? What if you could fully be the woman God created you to be with no holding back? Wouldn't that be awesome? It sound, as I speak the words, I can hear in the spirit in your head saying it's too good to be true. Because you've lived in so much restrictives, so many cages and boxes for so many years. That's not God's will. Jesus said he came to set the captives free. Paul says it is for freedom that Christ has set you free. And if that freedom doesn't at least begin at the most foundational point of you being the woman he created you to be, then what else matters? Oh, I have a daughter. I have a wife. I love them. I want them to be fully free. I want them to be everything that God said that they could be. I don't want them to have to live under the false bondage or regulations or rules of anybody else. And as long as I'm pastor in the church, I don't play that game. I don't want to do things and take actions or create rules or regulations that's going to foster that. I think all the women saying, oh, amen. Some of, the, some of the men are saying, shut up, Tom. Move on to the next one. <laughs> I think Mary is a perfect picture of a faithful woman holding nothing back. Wouldn't you agree? Man, she held nothing back that day. She didn't care about her reputation. She didn't care about what people think. She didn't care who else was in the room. She didn't care about the setting. All she knew is this. I, I madly and passionately love Jesus, and I cannot help but express it to him today in the most extravagant way I know how. I would be willing to bet that that bottle of ointment was probably the most expensive possession 
that she owned. It might have been her inheritance. It might have been her retirement. I don't know. But a year's wages. And she's going to give that to Jesus out of her extravagant love for him. Ladies, be free. I want you to be free. In whatever little part I can play in your world, the spiritual side of it, I want you to be fully free. No masks, no facades, no more hiding. Be free. So let's pick up the story back at verse 4. <clears throat> I got a little energy for this thing. <laughs> so Jesus has just anointed Jesus in a remarkably public and passionate way. And, and this is the reaction. Verse 4 says, But one of his disciples, Judas Iscariot, who was later to betray him, objected. Oh, surprise, surprise. Here we have a bunch of religious people together and somebody's objecting. Why was it this perfume sold and the money given to the poor? It was worth a year's wages. He did not say this because he cared about the poor, but because he was a thief. As keeper of the money bag, he used to help himself to what was put in it. Leave her alone, Jesus replied. It was intended that she should Save this perfume for the day of my burial. You'll always have the Pope among you. You'll not always have me. Mark chapter 14, verses 8 to 11, gives us a few more details into what happened at this part of the story. This is Jesus speaking. He says, she did what she could. She poured perfume on my body beforehand to prepare for my burial. Truly I tell you, Whenever the gospel is preached throughout the world, what she has done will also be told in memory of her. Then Judas Iscariot, one of the twelve, went to the chief priests to betray Jesus to them. They were delighted to hear this and promised to give him money. So he watched for an opportunity to hand him over. So here we have Mary worshiping Jesus in a most lavish and extravagant display. And what happens? Judas is offended by it. An offense that would ultimately give birth to betrayal. What an incredible contrast. Judas's betrayal is so dark, contrasted with the light of Mary's devotion for Jesus. Yet, oddly enough, most churches today would feel more comfortable with Judas's reaction than with Mary's. Right? We, we could have used that money to save the poor. What an what a upright and righteous thing to say. This, this is what you'd expect to hear from a responsible elder in the church. Why would we, why would we be so extravagant in worshiping Jesus if we could minister to the poor? Right? This is the only place in the New Testament where Judas is mentioned as doing something evil other than, well, the actual betrayal itself. And even this is done in secret. Judas successfully hid the darkness of his heart from everyone there, except for Jesus. Religious people usually do. Judas teaches us that outward appearances can be deceptive. And honestly, guys, <laughs> I take Mary's 
passionate, extravagant worship over Judas's seemingly proper religious facade any day. Ten times out of ten, I'd pick Mary over Judas. How about you? Who would you rather have on your team? Give me a whole team full of Marys. I don't even want one Judas. So Judas deceptively questions why the perfume wasn't sold and the money used for a more socially acceptable project or purpose. Ministry to the poor. Who can argue with ministry to the poor? What a great cover. Judas may have had a keen sense of financial value, but he lacked the appreciation of what God valued. He thought it was too much love, too much devotion to show Jesus. And he was obviously mistaken. I'll tell you what, if we love Jesus extravagantly, Jesus will never criticize us. If we love Jesus as extravagantly as Mary loved Jesus, you'll never be criticized by Jesus for doing it. The Judases, they'll criticize you. Every single time, they'll criticize you for extravagant worship. Jesus never will. I don't want to do anything to be aligned with Judas. How about you? I mean, that's a no-brainer, right? I want to be like Mary. I want to... I want to be extravagant in my love for Jesus. I'd rather be like Mary than like Judas criticizing other people for the way they worship Jesus. And then Jesus goes on to, to explain the prophetic nature of Mary's act. In John 12, 7, he says, Leave her alone, Jesus replied. It was intended that she should have this perfume for the day of my burial. Mark 4, 8 says, she poured perfume on my body beforehand to prepare for my, my burial. Did Mary know that this preparation for Jesus' burial needed to take place? Or was she simply just following her heart in the moment? Scripture doesn't speak to her knowledge. It does speak to intention. Could it be... I don't know. Could it be that Mary knew something that the disciples didn't? Did she know that he was going to die? And so felt compelled to offer this extravagant gift of devotion to Jesus. Could it be that Mary had more insight than even the disciples did because of the time she spent at his feet? I guess, I guess it's possible, but we don't really know. My best guess, my, my opinion, is that <clears throat> the attentions were God's. That's where the intention came I think Mary was simply operating out of a deep love and devotion to Jesus. I think it was Jesus who understood the broader implications concerning his death. This was so great an act of love that this is what Jesus says about it in Mark 14, 9. Truly I tell you, wherever the gospel is preached throughout the world, what she has done will also be told in memory of her. And here we are. Some 2,000 years later, and I'm preaching through the gospel, and we're talking about her today. It was a good word. Jesus was right. Okay, so let's finish up today. <clears throat> the plot to kill both Jesus and Lazarus. Meanwhile, verse 9 to 11, Meanwhile, a large crowd of Jews found out that Jesus was there and came not only because of him, but also to see Lazarus, whom had... Uh, whom he had raised from the dead. So the chief priest made plans to kill Lazarus as well. For on account of him, many of the Jews were going over to Jesus and believing him. <clears throat> so not only were these 
these religious leaders plotting to kill Jesus, we talked about that last week, now they want to kill Lazarus as well. Let me ask a question. How do you kill somebody who's already been raised from the dead? <laughs> We're going to kill Lazarus. What, Jesus will raise him again if you kill Lazarus? How do you, how do you logically plan to kill somebody who's been raised from the dead? I, I shared a quote last week from Blaise Pascal, and it just seems to fit so well today as well. It says, men never do evil so completely and cheerfully as when they do it from religious conviction, right? They have this religious conviction that they need to kill Jesus and they could justify that, so now we got a plot to murder Lazarus as well. This, this, is, this is not good. <laughs> Something wrong with this picture. They're supposed to be the moral leaders of the nation. And they're plotting murder and feel righteous and religiously justified in doing it. Good being called evil, evil being called good. You see why? It says here the chief priests had planned to kill Lazarus as well. The, the chief priests were mostly Sadducees. We talked about them last week. And Sadducees did not believe in the resurrection. And here they have Lazarus, a living example of life after death. And having him around was a huge embarrassment to their theological system. And trust me, religious people will do almost anything to protect their theological systems, anything. In this case, even murder. For them, there was only one solution to this embarrassing problem. Put Lazarus to death as well. For on account of him, the text says, many of the Jews were going over to Jesus and believing in him. Right? They're leaving the Pharisees' church, they're going over to the church of Jesus, and they just can't have that. So we've got to kill the other, the other guy. And this just made the problem of the chief priest even worse. Lazarus was drawing the people to Jesus, and in the opinion of these religious leaders, he just had to be stopped. And so Mark tells us, chapter 14, verses 10 to 11, that they had a new ally, the chief priest did. They had an inside man. They had Lazarus. Lazarus so offended that was $60,000 he could have had his hands on. Huh? What did I say, Jesus? Lazarus. Judas was offended. Thank you. Lazarus was offended. Judas was offended. He could have had his hand on some $60,000. Then Judas Iscariot, one of the twelve, went to the chief priest. They didn't come to him. His offense led to betrayal. He went to them. Could you imagine walking with Jesus for three years and then plot to have him killed? It's astonishing. After all the things he saw, he was there when the food was multiplied. He, he was there when Lazarus was raised from the dead. He'd seen the sick healed. God, Jesus sent him out and there were people healed with Lazarus, uh, with, with Judas praying. How? How does it happen? that Judas could go from that kind of walk with Jesus to being so offended that he would betray him. It boggles the mind. I've learned over the years to never underestimate the combined evil capabilities of offense, betrayal, and a religious spirit. Look at what it did to Judas. This is devastating. So, in today's text, this, this first uh, peek at in John chapter 12, we see a remarkable contrast. 
we see a passionate woman who, without inhibitions or facades, expresses extravagant love on Jesus. And on the other hand, we see an offended disciple who turns to betrayal. An offended disciple who's trying so hard to look good on the outside while hiding his true motives beneath the surface. Oh dear God, make me more like Mary and less like Jesus. Lord, give me a free heart and take away all my masks. Would you do that, Lord? So I want to pray today. I want to pray for you guys. Who, who needs prayer? I can have the, the worship team come back up. But who needs, who needs prayer today? Who, are you sitting here and you're thinking, man, I, I need to be more like Mary. I want to be able to freely and passionately worship Jesus. Come forward, let me pray for you today. Who wants to be free of, of the masks and the facades that you've collected on your journey? Who wants to be free of the fear of man or what other people think? Come up forward to I want to pray for you as well. Any of the women who are here today, if you've felt stifled in your spiritual walk, in your role as a woman, if you've just felt stifled by, by society and culture as a woman and want more of the freedom that I addressed this morning, come forward. I would be delighted to pray for you today. I want to pray that you could fully be the woman God created you to be. So if you need prayer, please come forward today. And if we could have the worship team come up, uh, we'll, we'll have one more song.